So good evening, Dharma friends. That sounds kind of loud. How does that sound? Oops. It's supposed to be on this side. How is that? How is that? Is that okay? Can you all hear me? It's not too loud, not too soft, just right. Boy, I feel like I'm sweating up here. (laughs) So tonight I'm talking about one of my very favorite topics. And that is vipalasas distortions of the mind. You can hear me, right? So, this is from the Angudara Nikaya. These four, O monks, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Perceiving impermanence in what is No, excuse me. Perceiving permanence in what is impermanent. Perceiving pleasure in what is suffering. Perceiving self in what is not self. Perceiving beauty in what is not beautiful. Gone astray with wrong views. Beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing, going again to birth and death. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching, which brings suffering to an end. When those with whole wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self and what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this taking up right view, they overcome all suffering. I love it when there's a promise for our freedom in a sutta. It says it right there. In one of their sutta, the Buddha says, If you weren't capable of it, I wouldn't tell you. So we can be assured that we're all capable of that freedom. So this sutta has to do with, um, very fundamentally, what um, Joseph talked about last night about uh, concepts and just the truth of concepts and how they work. I think all of the teachers... Uh, All of the suttas that we have been sharing have been about that, about um, distortions of what we think will make us happy, distortions of who we are, distortions of the uh, true nature of things. And this uh, notion of vipalasa or distortions is very fundamental to 
how the Buddha describes uh, the cause of our suffering. The root cause of our suffering is something called avijja, or ignorance. It's actually the first chain of the um, 12, 12 rounds of dependent origination. It's the beginning of the whole cycle of suffering and birth and death. It's ignorance, avijja. And it happens through these vipalasas. So it's not that we're inherently damaged, it's just that we have an inappropriate view of how the world works. We have some serious errors on different levels in an attempt to understand the world around us. So what are some of the um, interpretations of the term, the Pali term vipalasa? Um, Some people translate it as hallucination. Hallucination. Actually a very common uh, um, uh, term they use is perversion. It's a perversion of the mind. It's an erroneous observation, an illusion, a phantom. The Buddha actually calls it uh, also a mirage. Fantasy, bias, definitely a lot of bias in there. Exaggeration, a downright lie. A misinterpretation, a misrepresentation, baloney. That's just baloney. A contortion, a coloring, a slant, smoke, a story. So I'm sure we all know that according to the Buddhist cosmology, there's three principal elements of wisdom are seen clearly. And when we're able to see impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and the non-self-characteristics of all phenomena, we're seeing clearly. And if we are not seeing those things in any particular um, moment of seeing in the world, internally or externally, we have distorted minds. Our minds are distorted. These... um, these misperceptions are rooted in inherent tendencies of our mind to continue to see things as permanent, satisfactory, and belonging to self. So these four, um, so there's, um, in addition to those three, there's a fourth one in the vipalasa, and that is the tendency to see things that are not beautiful as beautiful. And that is a tendency for us to just really invest in things that aren't going to bring us the satisfaction that we think they are. Just really seeing things and wanting them, seeing them as wholesome, seeing them as um, able to bring some level of happiness when they're just not able to do that. So um, in addition to these uh, four uh, vipalasas or these four distortions, 
all of these four distortions happen at three levels within uh, all of us. So these distortions happen at three levels. And uh, the first level is sanya vipalasa, or distortion of perception. So, you know, as Joseph was talking last night about, you know, you see a large um, object outside that's maybe, you know, you assign the color brown to it. It's got these branches, these things that you call branches and leaves, and you say, oh, that's a tree. And that is a perception that we have. And we've kind of downloaded a view of what we know the words are for our natural environment, and we've overlaid there. So in the level of perception, we have incoming sensory stimulus, and we sort that stimulus into meaningful categories, like tree, table, person, and... You know, we assume that this is a process because we are seeing the innate treeness of something or the innate zafu of something. But really, it's a top-down process, right? I mean, we already have assigned conceptual overlays to these things in the, in the physical world. We think it's a bottom-up process that we're seeing you know, clearly about the things that are just out there, but we're already applying some knowledge to our perceptual process. So, um, and then another thing about um, Sanya Vipalasa, or distortion of perception, is that there's a lot that we could take in on this perceptual realm, but how much do we really take in? You know, we're probably only taking in, uh, you know, we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear, we think what we want to think, and we know what we want to know. So that's at the, um, at the level of distortions of perception. And those uh, four vipalasas apply there, is that we see things that we think are permanent, you know, we might see things as permanent entities. Uh, We don't see their unchanging nature. We might experience things as either satisfying or somehow um, able to bring us some well-being, some uh, meaningful well-being. We think that the things exist on their own right, that maybe if we believe in a creator that they have a three, five, five, three by five card in heaven that says this is what it means to be a chair or something like that. Some inherent meaning to it. And we perceive things, you know, a lot, absolutely, that we think are beautiful. Oh, that is so good. That lunch is so great. Or, you know, that yogi is so cute. I know what that's like. <laughs> The Buddha compares, as I said before, perception to a mirage. A mirage. And then at the second level, so that is distortions of perception, sanya vipalasa. And then we have a second level, one up from that. It's distortions of thought, citta vipalasa, or distortions of thoughts. 
the thoughts and the emotions that we uh, generate just by our distorted perceptions. For example, one classic uh, story in the suttas is, you know, walking down the road here, maybe you're walking down the road and as we know that truck has kind of, uh, those trucks have stirred up the pavement and stirred up the rocks and all of the, uh, maybe the creatures around there and we think we see a snake. Maybe we uh, look down and we perceive, we see a stick and we think it's a snake. That would be a uh, false uh, perception. We misperceive something. But if we saw that as a snake, that might actually, or that would probably, uh, start us uh, down a line of thinking. Like what kind of you know, weird, crazy animals do they have around IMS anyway? This is a pretty rural area. I hear that sometimes there's bears in the road and mountain lions. I know for sure that there's those ticks, gotta be careful of the ticks. And we just might get spun out on that. We have a term for that, we all know that's papancha. So misperceiving what's happening in the environment, it brings us to this uh, level of thought. And at the level of thought we have mental images or icons, you know, that we uh, overlay these ideas about, you know, how it works around here that we probably don't even know is working within us. We think about something or think over something and really the things that we're looking at are so much more complex. They are so much more nuanced than any conceptual overlay that we could put on them. Isn't that the truth? I mean, they have so much more um, meaning and so much more vibrant nature to it. And, uh, you know, we overlay it with these words that are pretty static and really don't carry a lot of explanation or nuance or complexity. And we're distorting, you know, even how we're thinking about, about a, a situation in the environment. So we are um, taking in this very vibrant, complex environment and we are distorting it into the confines of conventional words or conventional symbols. Things that could never really Um, It would take, you know, a dissertation. It would take a lot of words and parts to really say clearly what is happening in the environment at any given moment. And this explains how we, uh, you know, how our thoughts are produced and how they never really uh, match what's happening in the um, externally, in the external world or external world. And oftentimes it becomes papancha. It becomes what we want it to become. Or it becomes what we're used to thinking about it that it becomes. So that's at the second level, the distortion of thought. Chitta vipalasa. And then at the highest level, and um, just to say, distortions of perception are thought to be the least strong and the least maybe distorted. That you can always, you know... 
uh, think about what other ways you might interpret a reality in the moment. Whereas distortions of thought are thought to be a little bit more hardened and a little bit more difficult to see through. It's more difficult to see through how our thoughts are not really representing the truth of the reality in the moment. And then uh, the third level of distortion is um, dita vipalasa, or distortion of view. And this is the deepest and most um, difficult distortions of our minds for us to really see clearly and to uh, do something about, to let go of. We have these pathways of habitual thinking that congeal into certain storylines or narrative constructs. You know, we are raised and um, taught different systems of belief that organize perceptions and thoughts at a higher level of abstraction. And these things turn into worldviews and cultural artifacts. We have these ideas of who we are in our, in our minds, these very hard views that we don't very often at all realize are in operation as we pick out what we're aware of in the perceptual realm, looking around, and uh, these views absolutely inform how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, uh, you know, our sense of worthiness, uh, maybe the mana that I talked about a few weeks ago, our sense of eyeing and myeing. And these two are uh, distorting information into oversimplified ways of understanding the world. These um, dita vipalasas, these distortions of view. And these distortions of view, you can tell, one way to tell what they are is because uh, they inform us retelling the same stories about our lives. We relive the same story. You know, we have similar reactions to maybe on retreat, what it would look like. You know, we keep telling ourselves similar stories about the people we get involved with. You know, one of the stories that I tell, I love my mother dearly, but I'm always getting involved with men who remind me of my mother. (laughs) You know, it's just a, a view that I have of what a relationship looks like, right? It looks like this because of, uh, you know, the home that I was raised in. And these stories that just keep coming up over and over again. So what are some common distortions of mind that inform all of us? Well, we know of the stereotypes that we all have. You know, we're all raised even unknowingly with inherent bias about who's the most valuable, who's not necessarily valuable, what smart people with authority should look like, things like that. And even stereotypes about ourselves, like I'm this kind of person or I'm that kind of person. 
when, you know, we're not taking in all the data, it could be that we're that kind of person 10% of the time. But because our view is, you know, this hardened belief that we can't even see, that's what we take in about ourselves. It's a way to just, um, you know, prove ourselves right. Or it's one of those, you know, neuroscience uh, pathways through our brains that our thoughts are always traveling through. So stereotypes is one. Overgeneralization. So that might look like, you know, being in line for lunch is always like this. It's always going to be like this. This happens every day. Or maybe the first sit of the day is always like that. Or maybe it's a yogi next to us. This yogi is always doing this or that. And it could be something that we really love and it could be something that drives us crazy. The halo effect. That... um, you know, when we're in a really good and loving mood, everybody looks great, right? We come into the hall and we have a lot of metta in our mind. It's like, oh, this is my sangha. We all love each other. And then one day when we have a lot of aversion in our mind, we come in and it's like, I will never see any of these people again and I'm so happy. <laughs> and... Both of those things are such one-liners over an incredibly more complex reality than that. Mental filters, and this is uh, where the views really have an impact on our uh, perceptional perception sphere, is that we have um, selective attention to things, right? Uh, Ten yogis are being incredibly kind and patient and careful and observant. And maybe we experience a few yogis as a little bit less mindful. And, you know, that colors, we tend to think uh, that's how the entire experience is. Or maybe we have one or a few days of difficult opening to the first noble truth, which is good practice, but it might be very difficult. And we think, wow, this intensive meditation stuff is not for me. This is too difficult. And I can't do it when maybe for three weeks you were doing it great. And actually, opening to dukkha is great practice anyway. To think that it's not is actually a perceptual distortion. We have all or nothing thinking. We think I'm a great meditator or I'm a terrible meditator. I, you know, I could be a great Dharma teacher. Boy, that's a bad job. I don't want to do that. We can, uh, one thing that we know is happening is that because of our wonderful concentration and uh, mindfulness that things are getting magnified, right? Concentration magnifies things. And oftentimes we magnify things into catastrophe, We can't find our deodorant. That's a catastrophe. We often label things and people and ourselves, loser, stupid, winner, smarter. One of my favorite um, common distortions is projection. We all know this. 
we're feeling something and we're projecting that onto people outside of us. Actually, we had dinner with uh, Carolyn last night, uh, the teacher up at the Forest Refuge, and she gave this wonderful response to projection. May all projections be a benefit. (laughs) So you can all have that one. (laughs) When you see projections in yourself that you're projecting some ulterior, negative, evil motives of people or things, or even, you know, that um, some people here are enlightened and are carrying the light of the world. When you see that kind of projection or that kind of uh, amplification, you know, you can bow. May all projections be of benefit. So those are some of the common distortions of perception, distortions of thought and distortions of view that arise. And they're really informed by views or standards that we have in our mind that we don't see. And some of those are things like This is the way it will be forever. This is the way it will be forever. That's denying impermanence or anicca. Not seeing the truth of whatever that object is in that moment. Another one is For this experience to be okay, it should be pleasant. For this experience to be acceptable, it has to be pleasant. And that's denying the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha of all conditioned experience. Another common view, misperception, or com- mis- mistaken view, Adita Vipalasa, is I am making this happen, or this is happening to me. I am making this happen. it's possible to control this situation in this moment. I could exert my will. I should be able to exert my will and make this be a certain way. And this is happening to me. Yes, I am the center of the universe. And this is all about me. And this is exactly the avijja that the Buddha talked about, that we are perceiving and thinking about and viewing our world in ways that are fundamentally mistaken. We organize all of these concepts around stable entities, selves, that live in a stable world. All of those assumptions are based on that. Uh, We have an assumption that or an erroneous, mistaken belief that we can find gratification and shallow pleasures and fleeting sensory experience. That, you know, 
if, uh, if only I had this measure of success, if only I had this type of relationship, if only I had this relationship with my siblings, my kids, my workers, my partner, my parents, then I would have real meaningful well-being. This is one type of intoxication or slumber based on a limited encounter with reality. We're knitting together a net of false hopes with unrealistic and harmful desires, with false ideologies, false values, and aims of life that will never you know, offer what we think they will. And actually, I'm sure that we have views that we don't even realize that we have that when we looked at them would be not consistent with how we want to live our life or the ethics that we want to bring, bring to life. You know, the things that we want to live our life by. So this is a vija. This is... Uh, Vipalasa, Sanya Vipalasa, Chitta Vipalasa, Dita Vipalasa, distorted mind. So it's wrong view. One simple way to say it is that it is wrong view. And guess what the remedy is? Right view. <laughs> right there. The very first path factor, right view. And the Buddha taught that there are two conditions for the arising of right view. And oh my gosh, do we have those right now? Do we have the conditions for right view? Those are the two conditions for right view are the voice of another and wise attention. I'm getting excited just thinking about it. (laughs) We have the Dharma. The Dharma is the voice of another, the Buddha saying, look at it like this. See if you can understand it like this. And wise attention is Satipatthana, wise attention, mindfulness. And we have both. And it is what we are doing here together. So how do we work with this? So that is the theoretical overview. So how might we work with this in practice? How might we work with the idea of vipalasas? So you might get an an experiential understanding, not thinking, try not to think too much about it. In fact, you should let your thinking Uh, thinking capacity go for now and just watch or notice how uh, you might watch or notice what uh, perceptions in your immediate environment you're most drawn to or what you're most used to noticing. What are you most used to noticing? And what other environmental, um, you know, objects or things or elements in the environment that you totally overlook or that you routinely overlook. 
And then you might notice that there is a moment in the mind between seeing something and just seeing it as color and solidity and space and then actually applying a concept to it. See if you can at some moment see that connection that we do, the conceptual overlay to things. Like we might have a feeling that comes up and, you know, that's our self-pity. For me it would be, oh, that's self-pity. Or, you know, a sound outside, that's, you know, as Joseph talked about last night, it was, you know, some beautiful blue herons or a smoke alarm. See if we can see the moment where we go from seeing an object and actually applying a conceptual overlay, a perception. There is a moment in the mind between knowing something non-verbally and knowing it by putting a word to it. And then um, another way to investigate vipalasa is going from perceiving something and then starting all the mental thoughts about it. See if you can go, uh, you can see you perceive something, maybe it's another yogi, maybe it's one of the teachers, maybe it's one of the staff, and you project onto them, oh, they're really trying to take care of me, or uh, they don't care about me at all, I'm invisible, or... Um, I've got, you know, needs that aren't being met here or some other thing. And that will spin us off into a whole papancha uh, movie. You know, we'll just start with habitual ways that we relate to the world, habitual ways that we see the world through this papancha. It could be about our self-worth, It could be about what we're trying to accomplish as a yogi. What we're doing here. You know, as when he talked about the um, right view and all the ancillaries to right view, I'm going to be a better person. I've got to change this. Or this is how the world views me. Thoughts about how the world sees us or doesn't see us. And how that's our problem and that we have to fix it. And that our happiness and well-being and success is dependent on the world seeing us like this or like that. Our happiness and well-being is dependent on being a solid, unchanging success with a lot of resources and a stable relationship. Or maybe it's dependent on us as a person becoming enlightened having some type of spiritual breakthrough.
And then, so that's from perceptions to thoughts. We perceive things in the environment. It picks up thought patterns that we have. And then those are turn into view. When we have very solid habitual thoughts, they turn into views. Actually, there is a, um, there's a, for those of you in the business world, there is a very similar um, theory out in uh, organizational development. It's called the ladder of inference. Some of you might have heard about it. Chris Argus, who's considered one of the fathers of organizational development and business, he came up with this ladder of inference that really is, you know, has incredible similarities to um, the vipalasas as the Buddha talked about them. In this ladder of inference, it starts with just a very selective taking in of the environment and then that, you know, um, producing certain thoughts. It could be like, um, you know, you're sitting at a business meeting or whatever and you're trying to be clever and nobody is, uh, nobody is laughing at your jokes. And then the thought would come and, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me or I'm going to lose my job or they don't see me as an authority or I'm not someone who they will trust to lead an organization. Or could go the other way. Um, these people just don't realize how smart I am. They just don't get it. Where did they come from? I am just so beyond, you know, how these people understand what we're trying to do here in this organization. My vision is so much greater. So it starts with uh, selective perception, some thoughts that might be papancha that are obviously not based on all of the data that you could collect to make a decision or to have thoughts and have an opinion and then turned into a view. And that view, of course, then also um, determines what data we pick up on the level of perception. So, practically, we're looking to see maybe what we're not perceiving and what we are drawn to perceive, how that turns into a lot of thoughts, what views, you know, one yogi talked about measuring, all of the judgments about uh, whether we're doing something well or not well, you know, all of our judgments about the food, about the accommodation, about the teaching, about the fellow yogis, it's all based on measurement. We have a standard in our head that we don't even know is there. So that's a question that we could ask. What is the standard? What is the view that is forming this opinion? And since we're really, um, you know, working with magnified 
perception, we should be able to see that much more clearly. And we can see how the hindrances distort perception, right? Uh, Mindfulness and concentration magnify perception and hindrances distort perception. And we see everything along those lines. So another way to practice with uh, the vipalasas as we're on the sitting cushion, as we're mindful of um, our everyday activities, as we're doing walking meditation, you know, you might notice or or, uh, take one sit maybe to notice what the what your inclination is for the um, the um, conceptual overlay that you might put to something, and see if you can actually just dispense that. One thing that really works for me that I really like I've been using lately is the an, uh, the analogy of my um, email inbox. We all have email inboxes, don't we? And I'm sure many of us have you know, some sort of artificial intelligence that just puts a lot of stuff into our spam folder. We have a lot of emails, messages, thoughts, impressions that just go to the spam folder. And then we have some emails that, oh, that's an important email, it's interesting. I'm going to put that in my later box for later, for later. But, you know, on retreat... Um, because we have a magnified sense of all of these messages that we're getting, all of these emails, we don't have a spam folder on. Or I think our spam folder sometimes isn't working. So you might consider that. Like, wouldn't that work? Like a a thought coming in, up, spam, 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 spam. (laughs) Or later, 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 later. Could be very simple. And, you know, again, the reason why we're doing this is because I'll go, you know, I love to say this a few times, and I'm saying this to myself too. We're working with two very distinct knowledge systems here, right? We have our uh, linear, conceptual, count things, name things, knowledge system that's really useful for organizing things and uh, putting societies together for academic work, for reading and naming things. But what we're really working with here, what the Buddha offers is another way of knowing. This uh, other way of knowing that's based on intuitive awareness, intuitive understanding. And that is not a thought-based, conceptual-based way of knowing the world. It's a much deeper and um, clear way of knowing reality. This is where we would know the truth of reality, the three characteristics. And knowing, you know, the truth of reality, that's where our freedom really, really lies. And we can use our conceptual mind sometimes for noting or just, you know, not too much, just staying on track. But it's really, you know, mindfulness, this data collection system for intuitive awareness, just seeing the the nature of things, particularly seeing maybe the beginning and ending of things, the true nature of objects as they arise and what happens to them and as they pass away. As we see particularly impermanence, 
you know, we're just gathering that data and then wisdom arises. It's not a conceptual thinking, oh yeah, I, I know conceptually that things are always changing. And I know conceptually that things don't really bring me that much well-being. But, you know, from an intuitive sense, from intuitive awareness, we get a big insight about that. And that actually frees us. That's what releases us to stop expecting gratification in places that it will never be found. And that releases us from thinking that um, this person having this or being that will ever be the source of our well-being. It comes from that intuitive awareness. So let the thoughts go into the spam folder, spam, spam, spam. Or even later, 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 later. It'll still all be there. Wise attention. So I'll close by reading a little bit about right view, which is the wise response to the vipalasas to this distortions. And let me just say this, that this teaching has been really significant for me, not only on retreat, because I can just see that things are based on conceptual overlays that never have the complexity and richness of how I experience things intuitively. But, you know, you'll be happy to know that half of the time when I'm out there not in this room or not in practice, it's much easier for me to see these crazy thoughts I have and say, wow, that is like some crazy thought. And it's so much easier to let them go. It's amazing that it kind of weakens that sense of I'm right. You know, it weakens that and it gives us a lot more fluidity and flexibility. So this is about right view and right understanding um, from Gil Fransdahl. When Lou Richmond, who was a Zen teacher here in the Bay Area, asked Suzuki Roshi, if I do this practice, will I get enlightened? Suzuki Roshi said, if your practice is sincere, it is almost as good. That's pretty good, isn't it? To think that there is another way of saying what I am trying to say today. If your patience, if your practice is, sin- is sincere, then you have sincere qualities of how you are in relationship to the practice. But your practice has to be sincere. If it is filled with conceit, with striving, with aversion, then it is not as good as becoming free. But if you can start having good qualities in your practice, then it is almost as good as being free. And certainly you have the satisfaction of having an enjoyable and sincere practice. How we are is more important than what we do in spiritual practice. This is really the message. How we are is more important than what we do in spiritual practice, in Dhamma practice. It is nice that people find a lot of what's to do in their life but I think that there is a certain kind of dominant culture neurosis that proclaims that there is a right what out there for you. The perfect what, the perfect career, the perfect relationship. 
there is a what out there and life is about finding the right what. There are some people who are blessed by never needing to know, never needing to find a what. They wisely understand either consciously or unconsciously that life is about how, how we are. Wouldn't it be interesting if people ask instead, how do I do it? Or what attitude do you have towards what you do? How are you when you do what you do? So for some people, they understand that, and that is what their life is about. The what is not so important, but how they are in relationship to what they do is the important thing. I have known people who just shine, radiant people, for whom, for whom how is more important than what. I know some people who are extremely poor. I know one person in this area who is so poor for the area, but they are so rich because their life is about how, not about what. So that is an aspect of right view, right? Let's sit for a minute. May the positive energies of our practice be dedicated to the clear seeing of distortions of mind for all beings in all directions, including the ones on all these cushions and chairs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.